You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Do you ever have a relationship with someone, and uh, it just seems to be up and down? It's uh, it's a little tense, like it's a uh, it's a little, it's a little strained. It's a little stressed. Like you, it kind of comes and goes. Maybe for some of y'all, this is, uh, maybe for some of y'all, this is your marriage. Like it's just up and down. Some of y'all are like, yeah, I've been married for ten years. I've been married for eight really good years. Like you know, you like you, you get that as part of your marriage. Uh, me and Shannon, we had kind of a rocky dating relationship. We've been married for thirteen and a half years now since then. But before that, we had a, a dating history that was several years long. And, uh, and it was just, it was kind of all over the place. And if you would have asked me at certain times, I'd be like, nah, I'm, I'm not going to. But then the next week it's like, yeah, I'm in love. I didn't know what I want. And the problem is mostly mine. Uh, we broke up a few times. She broke up with me first. And so that's my claim to, you know, victimhood. So I can, you know, the, the other few times it was my fault. Uh, some of that in there, I just didn't know what I wanted. I was, I moved to California. I went to college. It was just kind of all over the place. And, and sometimes, does anybody feel like that's the way your spiritual life is with God? You're like, man, it's, it's just like, you, you're, you're really in. Like, there are these crazy spiritual highs. You're like, man, this year, here's what I'm doing. And so maybe, maybe 10 days ago, you were like, yeah, I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to read through the Bible every day. I'm going to do everything every day. 10 days later, you're like, uh, maybe next year. Let, let's try to find it. You know, we'll blame it on the year already, right? We'll try to find something to blame it on. You, you feel like you're spiritually bipolar, Anybody, anybody feel like that? It's just like, and some days it's, it's uh, I'm just, I'm finding great joy in the Lord. Here's who he is and what he has done. This is amazing. Then the next day you're, you're depressed and you're mad at God. It's just all over the place. And some people are like, yeah, here's, here's how you just always maintain this. The people who are like, here's how you maintain this spiritual high. They're liars. It doesn't work. Like we have to be pursuing God every single day. But you feel like it's just like you're always being tossed around. People talk about how it's a roller coaster. And you really feel that. You sense that. When we look at the book of Judges, this is the relationship of God's people with God. It's all over the place. And this morning, we're going to be looking at 41 verses. That's a lot of verses to be looking at. So we, we got to hustle up. Uh, but here's what I want us to see, is that it's this constant roller coaster. As we look at the whole book, it's going to be this constant roller coaster of emotions and a roller coaster of a relationship between God's people with God. Now, that's not to make an excuse, and we shouldn't look and say, oh, well, um, you know, if, if the Israelites did it in the book of Judges, I guess it's okay for me. I'll pick up my Bible reading next year. We shouldn't do that. But we also shouldn't say, uh, well, uh, I, I look at those, you know, dumb Israelites. I can't believe they would be that way. I'm so much better than them. I want us to see that the Israelites, through the book of Judges, often mirror our lives. And what we're going to see is the unfailing grace and mercy of God despite us. But we're also going to see what God, a good, gracious creator, father, calls us to. And so there's going to be both comfort there for us and there's going to be a challenge all throughout the book. So the scriptures begin with Adam and Eve. And you can go back and look at Genesis chapter one. So just to get us caught up to where judges are. So judges is in what we call the Old Testament, 
That doesn't mean it's like decrepit and it's useless. It just means it was written first. I wish we actually had a different name for it, but it's called the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not any better or worse than the New Testament. That's just what it is. So if you want to go to Judges chapter one, you can go there with me. But the scriptures begin with Adam and Eve. They were created in the image of God. A few minutes later, we get to Genesis chapter three and they fall. Sin enters into the world. They disobey God. The relationship between God and man is now broken forever for almost ever, until we get to a savior. We see that in Jesus Christ. But the relationship between God and man is broken. The story progresses. We see that sin got so bad, God said, I'm going to wipe this whole thing out. But there was one guy named Noah. He's a righteous guy. So him and his wife, his three sons, their three wives, they're saved from the worldwide flood. After Noah, we get uh, to a guy named Abraham. We see him in the middle of, uh, still towards the beginning of Genesis. In chapter 12, God says, I want you and your descendants to be my people. He makes this promise, this covenant with Abraham. So Abraham's son is Isaac, right? Isaac's son is, y'all can say it a little bit louder. I know there's not many of us, but how many? His name is Jacob, yeah. So now we have this, this kind of trilogy right here, this, this, these three main Israelite, um, th- this staple. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have this guy named Joseph. You know about Joseph? He gets sold into slavery. He goes over there. Well, eventually all of the Hebrews end up in Egypt. They end up in slavery. And they're there for about 400 years, and they hate it. So God sends a deliverer named Moses. So Moses comes in. Now, is he especially a a good guy? No. I mean, the beginning of Moses' life, he's killing people, he's bashing them in the head, but God still uses them. All throughout here, we see these these folks who are messed up. Uh, Adam and Eve, they messed up. Noah, he gets off the boat. He's like, hey, let's go get smashed and walk around naked. Uh, You know, Abraham, he's messed up before God. His wife laughs at God. We have Moses who's, who's killing people and God still wants to use them. He's got a lisp, so he has to go with, his, uh, with, with Aaron. And so they go before the Pharaoh. Well, they finally get out of Egypt because of the hand and the working of God. They get out of Egypt. As soon as they get out, what do they do? Let's worship some idols. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, I would never do that. Just hold that thought for a second right here. Intention with, here's, here's the grace of God, okay? So they come out of Egypt. Moses leads them out. And then at the end of Exodus, we see that there is a guy named Joshua. And Moses appoints Joshua as his successor for, to, to lead the Israelite people. He says, okay, God promised us the promised land, but Moses couldn't actually go in. He looked at it. He couldn't go in. So there's a guy named Joshua, and that's the book right before Judges. So in order for us to understand judges, we have to understand Joshua. For us to understand Joshua, we have to know where we've come from. So this is how we got to this point. So the Israelites enter into the promised land thanks to Joshua. So on the way in, they have a couple of big uh, battles. Maybe you've heard about the Battle of Jericho, where they walk around the, the, the walls for seven days. Seventh day, they walk around seven times, blow the trumpets. The whole thing falls down. The hand of God. Because of their faithfulness, the hand of God shows up. Now, there's another story about uh, a city of Ai. And once they defeat it, the people were not faithful. There was a guy named Achan. He decided to hang on to some stuff. And so God punishes the people of Israel because of their unfaithfulness. So we keep seeing this back and forth, this flip and flop. The, the faithfulness of God's people, the unfaithfulness of God's people, all throughout it, God is saying, I want to use you. And I want this covenant that I made with Abraham to be made complete. So uh, Joshua gets there into the land, and they split it up about 12 ways because of the 12 tribes of Jacob, of Israel. So they split it up 12 ways, and then they say, J- Jacob, or, sorry, Joshua tells the people, here's what I want you to do. If you are going to be faithful, God is going to bless you. If you are unfaithful, God is not going to bless you. 
That's kind of his parting words at the end of the book of Joshua. Then we get to Judges. And so the question that we're sitting here with, up to this point with these people, with these couple of million people, is are the people of Israel, are they going to be faithful and experience the blessing of God or are they going to be unfaithful and not experience the blessing of God? That's where we are. Everybody take a deep breath. Okay, so we got all the way, we got a couple thousand years of, of uh, you know, human history here. We get, to, we get to Judges chapter one. So go there with me. We'll be in Judges, but we're answering this question, what are they going to do? If you are in Judges chapter one, everybody say, got it. Okay, so Judges chapter one, it says this in verse number one. It says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us? against the Canaanites, to fight against them. So here we, we have Joshua. He was Moses' successor. He dies. He dies. He, he's led the people here. Judges, what are they going to do? Now, when we look at the book of Judges, just as a little bit of a, a, a foreshadowing, the, the book of Judges is a, a fantastic counting of renewal and revival. So when we start looking at this, and I started just kind of, you know, bashing these folks and just understand that there is renewal and revival here because of the hand and the grace and mercy of God. A lot of theologians compare it to the book of Acts with renewal and revival happening in the first church. Here's the difference, though. It begins, Judges begins really good, and we're especially going to see this next week, is it's this downward spiral of renewal and revival. Like the renewal and revival slowly tells off until the end. Acts is actually the opposite way. Acts begins, people are in an upper room and they're freaking out and renewal and revival is brought to life all throughout the entire book. So when we read this, understand that's where we're going. Verse number two. So real quick, verse number one. Uh, Israelites, Hebrew, Joshua, these judges, these are the good guys, right? These are God's chosen people. The Canaanites are the ones who are currently in the promised land. Those are the bad guys. Verse two, the Lord said, and by the way, if you ever see Lord in all caps like that right there, that means in Hebrew, the word Yahweh is used there, okay? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So he says, okay, here's the, here's the primary uh, Judah. Jesus is called the new Judah. Judah is kind of the leader of all the tribes. He says, I want Judah to go in first and clear out the land. But verse number three, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. Now, is this what God told them to do? Did God say Judah and Simeon go up? No. Does this make common sense though? Yes. Does God always use common sense? No. So their plan makes common sense to us as we're sitting here in our kitchen and living room. Like it, it makes sense. Like, okay, yeah, he just wants some reinforcements. So is common sense good, but it's spiritually flawed. They weren't trusting in God. Verse four, then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Now, there are a bunch of names. This feels like a geography lesson. I'm going to try to get through all of them, but just know I'm going to butcher some of them, okay? I'm going to make some of them up, uh, whatever. Verse 5, they found Adonai Bezek, which Adonai actually means Lord, the Lord of Bezek, at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. 
So they actually won. So Judah and Simeon, even though they disobeyed the Lord, they went up and God still blessed them. That's his grace. Verse 6, Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him, check this out, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. It's <laughs> pretty sick. And Adonai Bezek said, here's what the guy said after they did it. Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So they go in and they capture this guy, this king, this lord of Bezek, Adonai Bezek. They chop off his thumbs and his big toes as a sign to say, this is what you've been doing to other people. We're going to do this to you. Now, when we look at from our perspective today especially, we look at why would God send such violence to the Canaanites? We'll talk about that in the coming weeks as we look a little more at it. But understand this as a precursor, okay? Again, this is a special time. This is the word of God that has, the canon has been closed for a couple thousand years, so we can't add to it, and we cannot make direct application from this. So I'm not going to say, hey, let's leave out of here from Locust Grove, and let's go conquer the city for South Point. Like, you just can't do that. That's, ir that's an irresponsible handling of the text. But when we look at this, in this context, we think, man, this is really strange. This is bad. This is wrong. People being mean to other people was bad. But notice what this Canaanite king says. He says, I got this coming to me. This kind of makes sense. I was mean to other people, and they were mean to me. This is, this is the justice of God. And so understand that even though we look at this, we're like, man, this is weird, this is jacked up, this is wrong. Even this Canaanite guy understood. This is what God told him to do, and they did it. All right, verse 8. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. <clears throat> All right, I'll take a deep breath after that one. Verse 11, so Judah's going in and they're clearing out the land. So far, so, so good for the most part. Verse 11, from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, now, now Joshua and Caleb are... They're, they're buddies, okay? So Caleb is going to, he, he's been the leader. And so here's, we see a little, a little caveat of a romance story here. Caleb's family is the way, when we look at these next few verses, this is the way that Israel should have acted. They are, they're kind of put in here into this story to say, Israel, this is all you had to do. Like, it's possible. Verse 12, and Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter for a wife. Not a beautiful name, but she was probably very beautiful because guys now go and kill and take over cities. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So his, his uh, nephew goes and captures, and in this time it's okay. Today in Georgia it's not okay. Alabama's a little bit different, but then it's okay. Not many folks to choose from. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. And so Caleb says, hey, go capture the city. Whoever gets it, you, you got my daughter. And, uh, and she's, she's looking good. So he goes and does that. Verse 14. And she came to him, and she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, which is just an interesting little cap, you know, like I don't know why they included that, but she did. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing. 
Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, this is the model of what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go into the land, take the land, enjoy the land, and use the land for good. So we see here who weren't highly respected. First of all, were outsiders. Second of all, were women. And so this woman goes in and says, I'm going to be obedient to the Lord. We're going to see an outsider here, verse 16. And the descendants of Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. So here we have this guy who's, who's kind of been grafted into the Israelite tribe, Kenite, and he does what he's supposed to do. And so God says, okay, Judah, my, my chosen tribe, if you won't obey me, I'll get this woman and this outsider to go do it for me. And they go do it. It is possible for this to happen. And the people of Israel went there and settled together. It says they, they settled with the people. He's talking about they were the people from Judah. That's who he settled there with. Verse 17, and Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to the destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory. Now, some of these names may sound familiar with things that are happening even in, in uh, current day uh, political situations. They captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, notice. So they start defeating these people. They're good to go. They're good to go. God is blessing them. But all of a sudden, they reach some folks where they can't defeat them because this country, this, these, the folks in this land, have chariots of iron. Now, this, this verse is incredibly important, verse 19. It's really important for the, for the rest of uh, the, the passage and understanding the, these next several verses. But, but what we see here is God is on their side. So what does it matter if they have chariots of iron? Because just a few years before, what did God do with a giant wall around Jericho, several miles, miles big? He crumbled it just like that because of blowing some trumpets. Did, did they find the, the secret cord that pleased the Lord? No, they, they, they just blew trumpets real loud and said, God said, boom, I'm going to wipe this out. So if God can do that, what are some chariots of iron? They're nothing. So what we see here is the people, they were not relying on the power of God. They started going, God was with them, and eventually they get here and they're like, you know what? I think we can do this on our own. But they couldn't because these folks had chariots of iron. He could not drive them out. Verse 20, and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin, now notice, so to this point, they've been driving people out. All of a sudden, verse 19, there's this turn. Hey, we can't drive out these folks because there's a physical presence here. We're not relying on God. Now notice, from this point on, people aren't being driven out anymore. Now what's the command of God? At the very beginning, he said, drive out all of the Canaanites. Get them clear. Verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites had lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. 2021. I'm just kidding. This is when this was written. Okay. Verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, which means the house of God, and the, and the Lord was with them. And now the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. Now keep that in mind. Okay. We're going to see it again in a second. 
And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. Now notice, so, so the army walks up, and they say, they see this guy walking out of this, probably a secret door. You, they knew where the main entrance was. They're not like walking around, like, how do we get in this place, you know? So this guy walks out, probably a secret door, and they're like, hey, show us the secret door. How can we get in, and we'll be kind to you? Now, did God say to, be, to, to kick some of the folks out and then let some of them stay? No. So right here we see, hey, this seems like a good idea. This makes common sense to be nice to people, to not kick them all out. But is that the word of the Lord? No, the command of God was to get rid of all of them. So they say, we're going to be nice to you. And they weren't lying. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword. Remember they did that in Jerusalem, they burned it down. But they let the man and all of his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, again, the enemies of God, and built a city and called his name Luz. So the idolatry is remaining there in the promised land because they're not being fully obedient to God. We have common sense versus the direct command of God. Verse 27, and uh, lose, that is the name to this day. Verse 27, Manasseh. Now we're going to see seven more here, important number. So we see, that are they going to drive out the people? Probably not. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of uh, Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo, Armageddon. That's where Armageddon takes place in its villages. For the Canaanites, notice, the Canaanites persisted in that land. So because the Canaanites wanted to stay there, the Israelites said, okay. Here's what God said. Here's what the Canaanites said. We're going to go with the Canaanites. We see this downward spiral, and we're not even 30 verses into this thing. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. Now you're like, okay, yeah, let's get some free labor out of this deal. Was that the command of God? <laughs> no, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived there in Gezer, which is where they put all the old people. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. They were there. So now we've got from, hey, we're gonna let them stay kind of just on the outskirts to let's make them have forced labor to now the Israelites are living among them. They're not even in control of these situations. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. So like, oh, I mean, it could have been worse, right? At least they're trying really hard. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or Agzib or Helba or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. So again, the Israelites are now kind of interspersed. Was that the command of God? No. Direct disobedience. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. Some of you are like, okay, can we just get through all these names? We, we get the big picture right? I'm with you. At the same time, this is the inspired word of God, and so we're going to go through it. We're almost done. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted. So now we see this further downward spiral. The people of God were, had, had, at this point, almost forsaken trusting in God, and they can't even dwell among the heathens. The, the Amorites stay there. 
They persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris and Agilon and in Shalbim, but the hand of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. So finally, they turned into their slaves. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. So up to this point, we have, here, here's the command. And, and really, up to this point, what we have, some of these, I think why the author puts this in here is so the reader can, can say, hey, Israel felt really good about themselves. They said, hey, we, we may not have taken it over, but at least we got forced labor out of it. Like, look at the positive side. Chapter one up to this point is basically Israel saying, here's our press release. Here's our, here's our highlight film. And, and look, we, we mostly got it. We, we did a real good job. But when we go back and look at God versus man, who was Israel primarily trusting in? They were still primarily trusting in man. And we see that it kept going downhill. There, there's no, uh, there's no um, participation trophy for the Israelites. It's not like, hey, you tried real hard, A for effort. Like, like good, 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 good try. Nothing you can really do about it. No, chapter one points to a lack of faith in God. And it points to direct disobedience to what he commanded. So that's their report. Now we get to God's report, chapter two. He says this. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, Gilgal is important because in Joshua chapter 5, that's where God came down and said, I want to renew my relationship with you. And he, he literally says there, if you go back and look at uh, Joshua chapter 5, he says, I want to roll out, and Gilgal means to roll. All these words are important. You can go back and look at all these words. They're all really important. But Gilgal means to roll. And so at Gilgal, a few years before, God said, I want to roll your iniquity from Egypt. The reason that you got yourself into slavery, your idolatry, your sin, and once you got out of Egypt, you still went back to idolatry. He says, I want to roll that away, and I want to be back in relationship with you. So the angel, I don't think the angel lived in Gilgal, but it's important. The author puts it in here to say, this is the last time that God was like, hey, I want you to be my people. What I'm saying to you is really important is in Joshua chapter five. So here he says, the angel went up from Gilgal to Bochim, which is where we are now, which we're going to see in a minute. That word Bochim actually means weepers. That's the name of the city. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Here's what God has done. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. This was the command of God. This is what you were to do, is to get rid of this idolatrous people. Just so you know, as a little precursor to the coming weeks, they didn't kick out the Canaanites because they were a different, different ethnicity. They didn't kick them out because they were a different race. They didn't come in and say, God say, hey, you're my people uh, based on race, based on what you look like, based on what you've done. And so we're going to kick out the people that look different than you or in a different socioeconomic level than you. No, he wants to kick them out because they were idolaters. This is a spiritual cleansing. And he says, the reason is because you can't be around idolatry because you run right back to it. And so God says, I want you to be my people, sanctified, holy, set apart. And for that to happen, you're so weak, we gotta get rid of all the idolatry that's around you. This is not necessarily an indictment on the Canaanites as much as it is an indictment on the Israelites. He's saying, y'all are weak. 
So clear the land. This is what I've told you to do. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? I don't imagine the angel walks in, you know, and uh, um, just so you know, guys, y'all diso- you disobeyed God's voice, and uh, what is this you have done? These people are terrified. Verse three, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. The angel speaking on behalf of God says, okay, you're gonna get what you've asked for. You've disobeyed me. Now you're going to reap the consequences. Verse four, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, he's speaking to millions of people here, so he's gotta be real loud. As soon as he said these, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, which again means weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. So they felt bad. Here's a couple things I want us to see from this passage. Okay, So we have here a lot of verses. A lot of story has gone by. I want to see a few things. First of all, small areas of disbelief produce large areas of disaster. Small areas of disbelief. What does he say right here in verse number three? He says, they shall become thorns in your side. It, this morning, no joke. Uh, this morning I put, up, I put my shoes on and I got here and I was just like, man, I got something in the top of my shoe. Like, you know, just, it was poking the top of my foot. I took off my shoe. I was back here at the sound booth. Uh, I took off my shoe and I, I, it took me a second to find it, but it was right here on this side of my foot. And I, I pulled out this, I mean, tiny, tiny little like splinter thing that was in my sock. And it was so annoying. I, if you'd see me walk in here this morning when I got here about 8.30, I was walking like this because I was like, man, this, this thing is, is sharp. It's poking me. And I kept, you know, trying to work it out. He says, they're going to be a thorn in your side. They're going to be there. It may seem like something small, but it's going to be a disaster. The reason is they had forgotten who God was. The, That's a big thing. And he says, even this small little thing, it threw you off. This small thorn is going to fester and it's going to bring you to ruin. Here's the the question that, uh, that I want to ask of us this morning. The question is this, where are you saying in your life, I can't, but God is saying you won't. So you say, maybe it's your job. And you say, I, I, I can't be honest in my dealings with my job because then I won't be promoted. But God is saying, nah, you won't do what is right. Maybe you're saying, I can't avoid sexual temptation. I just can't. It's right there in front of me. I can't say no. I got to keep clicking on it. I've got to keep looking at that. I've got to keep driving down that street. I've got to keep engaging in that conversation. You're saying, I can't. And God is saying, no, you won't. You have the power through the Holy Spirit to say no to that. How many of y'all are not extending forgiveness to someone? We just came out of the holidays. And maybe, especially now, from being around your family, you need to extend forgiveness more than ever. That, that's how it goes for me. It's like, all right, now I gotta, now I gotta conjure up some, some forgiveness. Happy birthday, Jesus. You know, like, that's, that's usually how, but maybe you're not extending forgiveness. Ephesians chapter four says, if you will not extend forgiveness to someone else, it is a stronghold for the devil. 
You say, I can't extend forgiveness to this person. Just imagine what they did to me. And God says, no, you're saying I won't. For some of us, I say, I, you say, I can't experience financial freedom. I've got to keep living off of credit cards. I can't give to those in need. I can't give to my local body. I can't give to these things. And God's saying, no, I've provided plenty for you. You're saying, I won't. Maybe for some of us, you say, I can't have that conversation with that person. I can't tell them about what's happening in my life. I can't tell them about who Jesus is and how he can transform them. And God is saying, no, you're saying I won't. He says, you have my spirit, you have my power, and I've told you, go and do this. For how many of us, you think you're saying I can't, but in reality, you're saying I won't. The mark of walking by faith is full obedience. The mark that you are walking by faith is full obedience. You say, I can't do this. God says, yeah, you will. And if you don't do it, you are in disobedience. Now, the, the opposite, some of y'all would say, yeah, I'm, I'm living by faith. I believe. Isn't, isn't belief enough? It is. Whoever believes in the name of Jesus and calls on his name will be saved. Absolutely. But belief and faith oftentimes in the Greek and the New Testament are the same word. The opposite of belief is not unbelief. The opposite of belief is disobedience. And here's what I mean by that. The word faith or belief, to believe, can also be translated faithful. So when we look at Hebrews 11, we're like, hey, these folks, they had faith. But we don't look at Hebrews 11 and say, they believed and they sat back and didn't do anything about it. Hebrews 11, those who are faithful, it's the hall of, not hall of faith, but the hall of the faithful, it says, here's what they did. That's how they ended up in Hebrews 11, not because of what happened in their minds, but because of what happened with their hands. They said, we're going to live this out. If I believe this, it's going to enact itself in this way. There are a couple ways of having a relationship with God. One is by fully trusting in him, relying, falling back on his promises and one is using him to your own benefit, saying, I can mostly get there on my own, and I'll use God as a safety net. When I was in college, uh, I did a lot of things that are regrettable, but one of them uh, was rock climbing and, and repelling. And I'm, I went to college in, in Southern California, and so it was just common. So one day I was going out with a couple of guys, and my buddy Josh, he had watched some videos on the internet, and so he really knew how to climb rocks well and uh, take us up to about 50 or 60 feet in the air and uh, tie us off and then tell us to repel down this rock. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you watch some videos on the internet. Like, we barely have the internet, but that's okay. Like, we watched some videos on it, and, uh, you know, we had, like, dial-up. took us forever, but we figured it out, okay? So my buddy Josh, he takes me and uh, my buddy Matt, my buddy, my buddy Rob. We go out there, and we're like, hey, let's repel down these rocks. So uh, I'm one of the first ones up. So he ties it off. He says, okay, get your harness. And, uh, and I, I, look, I look down. I'm, a little, I'm pretty scared of heights. And I look down, and I'm like, oh, man, glory. And so I uh, asked Jesus to come in my heart again. And, uh, and so he says, okay, what I need you to do is to, is to lean back. Just lean back ever so carefully. I'm like, you mean just like lean back? Like, all right, I'm leaning back. He says, no, no, no. He says, I mean all the way lean back. So I lean back a little more. He's like, no, all the way. So finally, I let myself rest on that rope. And I was okay. I was okay. 
some of you are like, you didn't fall? Like, hit your head? Like, something's wrong with you. I'm like, no, nah, I, was, I was okay. So I'm sitting there. He says, okay, now I want you to jump down the rock. And as, 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 um, as you do that, I'm going to let the rope down some. But you're fine. I'm like, okay. So I jumped down an inch. He said, a little more. Uh, two inches. Six inches. Twelve inches. You know, and eventually I was going down, and I repelled down the face of this rock pretty easily. Now, some of the guys stood there and just like, and the only reason I did it is for my own pride, okay? Not because of the grace of God, but I was just like, I didn't want to look like that dude who couldn't do it. But I came all the way down. Rock climbing is a little different than rappelling. Rock climbing, you're mostly holding onto the rocks, using your hands and your feet. And the rope is there just as a safety net in case you fall. But when you're rappelling, your faith is fully in that rope. And if the rope fails, you're done. So I, I, I ask you, what type of faith do you have? What type of relationship with God do you have? Is it rock climbing? Like, I'm mostly going to do this, and as I need God, I'll kind of bring him along. Or is it like repelling, where it's, man, I'm fully giving myself to what Jesus Christ has commanded me and empowered me to do. What type of relationship is that? Or are there areas of unbelief in your life? Martin Luther said, um, and then it was kind of retranslated by Tim Keller, but he, he basically said, behind every sin is an unbelief, is disbelief about God. So you're not just fighting against this particular sin in your life. You're not believing that God can give you victory over that sin. You're not believing that God can ultimately satisfy you. So you keep running back to that sin. We must preach the gospel to every part of our lives. And the reason is because those small areas, we're like, oh yeah, we, we mostly conquered this Christian life. I've mostly conquered all the sin in my life. It's, I'm just going to let a few little things in there around the borders. No. Any unconquered territory of sin in your life is leaving a foothold for the devil. It's leaving a foothold for the enemy to come back and to enslave you. So what part of your life are you saying, I can't? But God is saying, nah, you won't. Here's the second thing that we see here in this text, is that we choose between the God who saves and gods who enslave. Again, they're there, these territories in our lives. We see in verse, let's look at verse number two. We go back. He says, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. This covenant that God has taught, he says, because I've already made this covenant. In verse number one, uh, I brought you out of Egypt and I, I swore this to your fathers. I will not break my covenant with you. So God is saying, he's hearkening back to Genesis chapter 15. So in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham. He takes him outside. He says, see all the stars of the sky. I want your inhabitants to be like, to be greater than all the stars in the sky, to be greater than all the, the grains of sand on the seashore. In Genesis 15, God shows up again and says, I'm, I'm just going to make this extra clear to you. Here's how I'm enacting this covenant with you. And so Abraham, he's sleeping. He has this vision, this dream of what God is doing. So God appears to him in a dream. And, and there was this thing uh, called the cleaving of animals. We see it in Genesis chapter 15. The cleaving of animals. And this is how they made covenants with one another back then. Is they would take five animals and they would cut them in half and they would lay each half on either side. And the two folks who were making the covenant together would walk through the bodies, the carcasses of these animals bloody, gruesome, right? So they would walk through. 
And as they walked through, there would be just blood pouring at their feet. And they would walk through, their arms around each other, and the blood would be splashing up on the bottoms of their robes. What they were signifying to each other and to everyone who was standing there looking was that if I break this covenant, may my blood be like the blood that's on the ground. This is a covenant to death. If I break this covenant, you deserve my life. That's what they were saying. But here's the vision. Here's the dream that Abraham has. This is what God gives him in Genesis 15. God walks through that cleaving of animals with Abraham. It's God, while Abraham is sleeping, and theologians would say the sleep represents sin. So even in the midst of our sin, God says, I want to create a covenant with you. I want this blood to be blood that I'm shedding for myself and for you. I'm making this covenant with you. You're not, you're asleep. You can't even do anything about this. I'm making the covenant for you on behalf of you so that when you break this covenant, it's still my blood that's going to be shed for you. This is my promise that I'm going to fulfill for you. It's my work. God says that when you run from me, I'm going to pursue you. You didn't pursue me. You weren't seeking after me, yet God sought us. You weren't asking for my grace. I'm the one who extended my grace and my mercy to you freely. Is that the kind of God that we will pursue? A God who saves? Or are we going to pursue these lesser gods that enslave us? God says, and this is really the, the, the thrust of judges, God is faithful when you are not, in the midst of your unfaithfulness, God is still faithful. When you think that you can't make it one more day, when you watch the news or you look at your viewing history or you look at your relationship with your wife or with your husband or with your kids or you look at your finances or your checkbook, you're like, I can't make it. When you look at your personal life, when you look at what happens inside of your brain and you think, I cannot overcome this sin. I can't do it. I can't find my joy in Christ and in Christ alone. When you're so filled with anxiety and depression, you don't think you can even get out of bed in the morning. Jesus says, I will deliver you. I began this good work in you. I will see it through until the day of completion. God is faithful when you are not. He is greater than the sin that inhabits our minds, inhabits our lives, inhabits our world. We know this because of Jesus Christ in the gospel. It's not just God saying, hey, here you go. No, forgiveness always costs someone something. We know that God is in complete control, that he's faithful when you are not because Jesus Christ came. We didn't even want him to. And when he got here, we were mean to him. In fact, the most religious people put him to death. Jesus Christ came and identified with us. He lived the way that we were supposed to live. He died the, the, by the death that we were supposed to die. He rose again. He's ascended. We're now, he's still making intercession for us. He's still being faithful. His faithful ha faithfulness has not stopped in a very real tangible way. Jesus Christ in the flesh is sitting there in heaven as an advocate for us, as a mediator for us between man and God. Remember Genesis chapter three, the relationship is broken. Well, now it's put together because of God's faithfulness. Because when we look at the book of Judges, we're like, man, these people are messed up. This is the cycle that we're all in, that we've all been in, in Genesis chapter, since Genesis chapter three, and that we're going to be in until Jesus Christ comes back. We see it in Romans chapter eight. Here's his work for you. Romans eight says, he foreknew you. 
stop me when I get to the part where this is, this is your contribution to salvation. God foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He says, you're on this salvation train and we're going to end up at glorification station. He said, this is, this is all my work. The train's not stopping. Like We're going to keep pressing on. This is me. This is what I've done for you. And we see here, there's a question for us, similar to the question that we began this book with. What will you give your life to? What will you worship? What are you going to do? What are you doing with your life? Jesus is the only God. He's the only savior. He's the only one that if you follow him, he will fulfill you. That if you run from him, he will pursue you. That if you forsake him, he will still forgive you. He is a God who saves. He is a God worth worshiping. The last thing that we see here, and we can go down to verse number 10. I just want to touch on verse number 10 here in Judges chapter 2. It says this, And all that generation also were gathered. It's talking about this generation. So chapter 1 is kind of a big picture. Here's, here's the book, here's the book starts. And then chapter 2 kind of goes and digs into a few more details. It says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That means they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. We see a generation of people here. Here's how I would summarize this. And we can, we can look at, we've got verses four and five. They weep and they make sacrifices. That's good. But here's what they teach their kids. They teach them that apostasy results in and leads to amnesia. Now, apostasy, I would say, is the opposite of repentance. I'll tell you why in a second. But apostasy is turning from the truth to something that is false. Amnesia is when you forget stuff. They turned from the truth of God's revelation to them and completely forgot what he had done. That's why when the angel shows up in verse number one, he says, here's what God did. Could you be so slow as to forget coming out of Egypt? because of these 10 plagues with the Passover going through the Red Sea, the chariots were right here. They could see them glistening in the sunlight. And God said, you know what? I'm going to open the sea and take a couple million people through here. And you get to the other side and you see the hand of God providing for you with bread every single morning. They didn't like that. So he sends birds every single morning. They still get mad about it. So they hit rocks and water comes out. And God says, that's not how you do it. Just speak to the rock. That's it. They say, okay. They keep going. They see the walls of Jericho crumble and fall to the ground. They see the earth open and eat people because they were disobedient to God. And yet we get to Judges chapter 1, and, and the angel says, you forgot who God was. One generation believes something. The next generation assumes that thing. The third generation, they forget all about it. That, that's, that's just a sociological truth. But we see here in verse number 10 that their apostasy had led to their amnesia. They forgot about what God had done. That word there in verse number 10, who did not know the Lord, who did not know Yahweh, it's actually a, a very sexual term, that word know. And what it means is they didn't just know, cognitively know about God. It means they had not experienced intimacy with God. It wasn't like, hey, let me tell you these stories about what God has done, kids. 
No, the parents had completely forsaken it all to say, look at who Jesus is. Experience his life, his death, his passion, his energy. And I would ask you parents, what are you teaching your kids? Because we can do some here as a church on Sunday mornings. I often say that our student ministry, our kids' ministry, is a supplement to what you are giving your kids day in and day out. Are you teaching your kids to worship God with how they spend money, with how they spend their time, with the things they watch, with the gifts and talents that they have? Are you teaching your kids those things? Are, are you as concerned with where your kids are going to go to college as with where they're going to spend eternity? And I think a real scary question is what would your kids say? Because you can, you can pander that question and that answer all day long. Oh yeah, absolutely, pastor. I would, uh, that for sure. Go ask your kids what they would say. What is the most important thing in, in your life? Because within a generation of seeing all these things, these folks had forgot about who God is and what he had done. The other thing we see here is that these folks in verses four and five, that they cried, but they did not repent. The people lifted up their voices and they wept. They were weepers there at Bochim. Now, weeping is good, but repentance is better. We can't just look at our lives and say, I'm just going to confess it. I'm just going to confess it. Let me, let me tell some folks about it and then get back into it. Confession is good, but we have to be repenting, turning away from that. And that's why I say turning away from that sin is complete, completely different than apostasy. Apostasy is saying, I'm going to go into that. And I may say I don't like it, but what does my life represent? What is my life proving about what I say that I believe? Are we a people who are preaching the gospel to every single dark corner and crevice of our lives? Or people who, when we get depressed, get sad, when we become selfish, when we just want to click that, man, buy now, but on Amazon because we're materialistic. That's me, by the way. Are we running to the gospel saying, what do I really believe about finding my satisfaction in Jesus Christ and him alone? So I would ask you, what areas of your life does the enemy have a stronghold in? Because like these folks, we can, we can say, hey, let me make some excuses. Let me just say I can't. But God is saying, no, you won't. Let's be honest about these things. And for a moment, here's what I want us to do. I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to identify these areas that need repentance in our lives. Some of y'all are like, man, I haven't done that in a minute. Yeah, because it's scary. Some of y'all, some of us, are scared to be part of community because we are scared that we may be fully known. Because if you are fully known, you're afraid that you may not be fully accepted. The gospel of Jesus Christ says you can be fully known and fully accepted. Not because of who you are, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. If you would, church, if you're sitting there on your couch, sitting here in one of these nice chairs, close your eyes with me for a moment. I, I, I want the, uh, the Holy Spirit to, 
I want us to listen to him just for a moment. I want you to ask him for yourself to identify areas of needed and necessary repentance. Ask him now. Maybe it's the sin of control. Maybe we're not trusting that God is who he says he is. He is in complete control of all things. Maybe you're trying to earn the favor of God rather than trusting and resting in his grace, which satisfies. Maybe you are living selfishly and sinfully because you think that if you let go, that Jesus Christ will not be all satisfying. Maybe you are running to gods that enslave, and, and maybe you find happiness for a moment. And I would plead with you to run to the God who saves and find ultimate, lasting joy that no matter your circumstance or situation, because of his faithfulness, you can find joy in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of grieving, in the midst of sickness and of pain, because Jesus Christ is enough. Because it was his blood that was shed for you. And he still brought you through and made a covenant with you. For some of us here in this room or maybe watching online, for the first time, you can repent of your sin. Turn from that sin. Turn to placing your faith in God and in God alone, in Jesus Christ, who has made the sacrifice. Not a little bit of faith, not where you're kind of holding on, but where you're resting fully in him. church family, as we consider, you can look this way. As, as we consider this passage, <clears throat> we, we come against something and um, it's, it's difficult because we see the conditional love of God mixed with the unconditional love of God. You're like, wait, I thought God's love was unconditional for all of us. If that were the case in a vacuum, Jesus' sacrifice would be unnecessary. God's love for you is unconditional because of Jesus. But it was conditional. Therefore, Jesus had to die. There was a condition that had to be met because of our separation with God. And God says here to, to the Israelite people, he says, be faithful and I will bless you. He says, but I've, I've made this covenant with you. And that's why in verse number three, he says, what have you done? You put me at odds against myself. I asked for your faithfulness and you have not given it to me. But that conditional love and the unconditional love of God the Father is met at the cross. And he says, everything that you've done 
that you will do, that you are doing right now and thinking in your mind, it can be covered by the blood of Jesus if you repent of that sin. And so for those of us who are, who are believers, we've said, yeah, that's it, but I still find this tension, it's still fighting in my soul. The cross answers both our complacency of sin because we see what it has done to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And so I would plead with you, as we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, and as we take a, a cup of juice, and we take a little piece of, of fake bread, and as we eat that, be reminded that your sin is still costing Jesus Christ his life. The sin that we are committing today is what put Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross addresses your complacency with sin. But the cross also challenges us to live for Jesus without crushing us. That's the beauty of the gospel. We have the power of Jesus Christ because of the cross. So as we take, uh, and hopefully you grabbed one of these on the way in. But as we take this, this communion here in this room, <clears throat> we have the body of Christ, which is represented in a piece of bread. And Jesus said to his followers these words. He said, take, eat all of it. At the cross, we find forgiveness because his body was broken for us. The second part of that, Jesus took a cup of wine, and we have here represented grape juice. And he said to all of his, his disciples who were gathered there together, he said, take, drink ye all of it. The body of Christ has been broken for us. The blood of Christ was, for out, was poured out for us. We find freedom in the cross. We are accepted before God the Father. 